0: So, today I'm going to be leading us through a similar method, but something, it's slightly modified from that version of the inductive method. It's called the coma inductive method, not the coma inducing method. So, hopefully y'all will stay awake today. It's the coma inductive method. And what coma stands for, C O M A, is context. So, first we're going to look at the historical and cultural context, and even the biblical context in which the passage was written. Then we're going to make observations. We're going to look at the meaning of what the text might mean, similar to interpretation. And then finally, once again, application. So let's go ahead and go through Isaiah 49, one through seven. Um, we'll go ahead and do the reading now. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. from my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hands, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. But I have said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up, Princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So in going through the Koma Method, the first thing we're going to look at is the context. So questions that we might ask when we're looking at context is, why was the passage written? Who was the audience of this passage? What was the state of Israel at the time the passage was written? What's the literary genre of the passage? And what happens in the passages immediately and before and after this passage? So when we're looking at context, we first wanna ask who was Isaiah, this man that wrote this passage? Who was his audience? And why were his writings relevant for their time? So Isaiah was a prophet who lived 700 years and he wrote the book of Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah and he was born and lived about 200 years after Solomon's reign. So as you know, Solomon had, King Solomon had the greatest reign of all Israel, a time of great prosperity. And in that 200 years, before the t- between the time that Solomon ended his rule and Isaiah began his preaching, the kingdom of Israel had split up into two camps. So you had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And during this time, there were numerous kings And the two states were constantly under threat of being attacked by outside forces. So, Isaiah himself, unlike many of the prophets, was a direct political activist where he spoke and counseled the kings of Judah. He counseled four different kings, actually. And we have an image here of the periods under which Isaiah prophesied. So, the reigns of King Uzziah and King Jotham, the reign of King. Ahaz and the reign of King Hezekiah. And in those times, you had four different powers trying to come in and conquer Judah. Yeah. So um, during this time, it was a time of great political turmoil. And the greatest power in the time that was trying to overtake all of the countries in the region was the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrian Empire was the first world power in the world that sought geographic expansion purely for the sake of geographic expansion, not in order to gain resources or um, to fight over borderlands. So because of this context in which they were trying to actively conquer other regions, they were the first power in the world to have an active standing army. So first army ever to have professional soldiers, that, that was their main job, was to go and conquer other peoples. So there was a certain brutality to the Assyrians that struck fear in the hearts of people that were worried about being conquered by them. So Assyria was also struggling with Persia, Iran, as we know it today, Babylon, which is in Iraq as we know it today, and Egypt for power, for control of the different city-states in the Middle East. In the late 8th century, just before Isaiah was born, the Assyrian Empire, as large as it was, entered a period of dormancy where they weren't actively conquering other regions. So during this time of dormancy, the kingdom of Israel fell into a state of prosperity. They, were, they enjoyed a great amount of freedom. They weren't having to fight with a lot of enemies and there was a lot of prosperity that came to the kingdom, but mostly experienced by the upper classes and the leaders. Those who were in the lower classes and the rural areas faced a lot of taxes and a lot of social inequities. So there was definitely a difference, a, a great social wealth gap at that time. So during Isaiah's time, the greatest and most brutal Assyrian king rose to power. Tiglath Pilate Third. So we have a picture of him in profile so he doesn't look as scary, but he was the greatest and most terrifying of all of the Assyrian leaders. So Pull, um, Isaiah called him Pul in his book. So Pul ended the dormancy of the Assyrian Empire by waging a brutal military campaign. His methods were to go into an area, make them vassal states, And then at the first hint of rebellion, which was a common problem for his predecessors, he would remove the leaders. And then if further rebellion happened, he would then deport all of the upper class and the leaders of the society. Now a big part of the reason why he did this was that the Assyrians, along with the Israelites, believed that a people's god was associated with the land in which they were in. So as you remember for the Israelites, for them, their god was associated with the temple, especially after the reign of Solomon when the temple was built. Um, for the Assyrians, the idea was if you remove them from their lands, you remove them from the protection of their gods and that makes them demoralized and easier to conquer. So Isaiah's writings were relevant for their time because they prophesied about the eventual downfall of the Assyrian Empire and the rise of a servant from the line of David, which looking back 200 years, it's like the glory days. It's kind of like what we look at now when we look back to the revolution. There's this glorification of Oh, this was how good things used to be. Well, let's ask the question. He's prophesying about the fall of Syria, Assyria. But what is the nature of prophecy? We might be tempted to think that prophecy is predicting the future, talking about future events to come. But that's not the way that prophecy is used in the Bible. The definition of a prophet in the Bible is someone who speaks on behalf of God. So there's, to be sure, there are definitely prophecies that prophesy or predict the future. So there's you know, parts of the book of Daniel, we have the book of Revelation that talk about things that are to come. And even parts of the book of Isaiah talk about things that are to come and things that have already passed. But regardless of whether or not the prophecy is meant to predict the future, meant to predict the present, or even a combination of both. As we know, history is cyclical and things that apply at one time can apply again. Regardless of what it is that the prophecy is supposed to apply to, the intent of the prophecy is the same. God speaks through his prophet so that he can call his people to action, whether that's feeling a certain thing, changing their hearts, doing something. Again, the prophecy is spoken as a call to action now, in the present, regardless of whether it's in the future or the past or the present that these things happen. The question that we want to ask ourselves is what action, what feeling is God trying to spur through us, through this prophecy, and in looking at this passage? So to try to answer this question, we'll make some observations about the passage and try to make sense of what it is that God's trying to say to his people back then, and also what he's trying to say to us now. So in observation, we want to look at the structure of the passage. We also want to look at if there's any repetition or contrast. We wanna say what, um, if there are characters, we wanna look at who they are and what they say and do. And then finally, we wanna ask ourselves, is there anything surprising about the passage? So first of all, um, looking at the structure of the passage, if we can bring up Isaiah 49, one through seven again. What this passage is showing us is the servant is speaking to me. When it says, listen, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. This is the servant that's speaking. And it's followed up in the following passages by God responding to the servant. And it's this back and forth conversation between the servant and between God. And they're primarily about God's plans and purposes. The servant is saying, I am this type of person because God formed me in this way. And I was made to bring salvation to the Israelites. God responds, that is too small a thing for you. I am going to send you out to be a light to the Gentiles. So let's go ahead and make some observations as a group. What are some recurring themes that we see in this passage? If you have your Bibles, pull it out. I'm sorry, we can't. Um, it would be difficult to shove the entire verse onto one screen, because it would be way too small, at least for us older people, so. Um, shout out any recurring themes that we see in this passage, either within the passage itself, or with the previous book of Isaiah, Isaiah 42 that Jay preached on last week. I think to start with, as you guys are looking through your Bibles, one thing that I noticed was this idea of islands, distant lands and new islands. Isaiah repeats the word islands and refers to islands in his book for 17 different times. So it's a pretty significant theme. It was also mentioned in Isaiah 42 um, in terms of God bringing the islands to himself to worship him. Yeah, yeah, so there's a lot of declarative language, it's a lot about speaking and listening and responding, definitely. Yeah, definitely, soft nurturing mother imagery and violent war imagery is definitely a contrast. And in addition to recurring themes, it would be good to look at any contrast that you see because contrast is usually used in poetry as a way to bring our attention to something. Um, And this is definitely prophetic poetry, as most prophecies are. Any other thoughts on contrasting images or recurring themes? gathering, and gathering. Definitely, yeah. Sorry, just repeating everything that everyone says for the sake of people who might be online. (laughs) because Who knows, we couldn't hear people. Yeah, I gotcha. Another one that I noticed was this idea of laboring in vain versus being honored by God. And that's going to form a key theme of our application for today too. So next, let's talk about who are the characters in this passage, and what do they say and do? So who are the two characters that you observe? Shout it out. God. Zoe? Israel, the servant. Yes. All right, so let's talk about the servant and God. Yes, good job, Zoe. Um, So what does the servant say and do, and what does God say and do? Go ahead and shout out what you see. Oh, thanks, guys. It doesn't have to be anything um, particularly revolutionary. The servant responds. God responds, too, for that matter. Yeah, they're definitely having a dialogue back and forth. The servant is well aware of who God is. Oh, Oh, and who he is. Yeah, definitely. Yes, he has both an awareness of himself, where he came from, as well as an awareness of God. So, some other things about the servant. He's honored in the eyes of the Lord. He's despised and abhorred by the nations. He serves rulers, and yet he will have rulers bow down to him. For God, he calls the servant Israel. He plans to display his splendor through the servant. The servant says, you're here to have me bring Israel back to you, and God corrects the servant and says, no, no, that's too small for you. I'm gonna have you bring a light to the entire world. Another thing I would say is that because this is prophecy and this is in some ways talking about either things that are or things that are to come, and the fact that this is coming from God's perspective, when the servant expresses his frustration, that means God knows that the servant is frustrated. He knows the servant is frustrated. He knows the servant is going to be frustrated. And he acknowledges that in his heart. He doesn't rebuke the servant. He accepts that and responds to the servant. Not necessarily addressing the servant's concerns about laboring in vain, but he does respond to the servant in dialogue. So let's ask the question, who is the servant? Go ahead and shout out your answers. Jesus? Israel? Us? Yeah, those were basically the three answers I came up with too. (laughs) Although us is a very all-encompassing answer, so, you know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, definitely. And the servant may have been people that were, the nation of Israel. It could have been Jesus, and it could be us, and it could be something in the future that we haven't even seen yet. We don't know. We just don't know. That's the nature of prophecy. So this last question, what are some things that are surprising about the passage? Um, I'll just go ahead and give my observations of what I found was surprising. First of all, Isaiah 49. These are the songs of the suffering servant that we're studying this summer in this Bible series. But the fact is that this The passage doesn't really talk that much about suffering. The entirety of 49 doesn't talk much about suffering. There is the laboring in vain that the servant talks about, and certainly if the servant is suffering, um, there's some injustices that are being done to him. But as a whole, compared to the other songs of of the suffering servant, it doesn't really talk about suffering that much. Um, Another thing that's shocking about this passage that would have been shocking for the readers at the time is that Isaiah's prophecies are the first that address the expansion of God's kingdom from being just for the Jews to being for the entire world. Now this is really striking, considering that they're in a time of particular hostility with other nations. This is not a time of peace. This is a time where they're at war with other people, and yet God says, your enemies, I'm gonna bring them into my fold. So if we can bring up Isaiah 19, 19 25, This is one of the first places where God, uh, where Israel, or Isaiah talks about God bringing people into his fold outside of the Hebrew nation. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will save, send them a savior and defender and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together, and in that day Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Now this is extraordinary when you think back to the fact that the Assyrians seem like the most evil, brutal people. Yahweh is the Israelites' God. He's for them. He's not for everyone else. And yet, Isaiah is saying, hey, I'm now going to be even for your enemies. It's as if we were told that we, as much as a nation, love football. If we were told that the next state-of-the-art NFL stadium was gonna be located in Russia, and that the Rams were moving to Moscow. That's the best
1: analogy I could come up with, and I know it's terrible.
0: (laughs) That was honestly all I could think of in terms of what it would be like to have something that's like so, America, so us, and have that taken away and given to one of our enemies, and I realized Russia's not necessarily our enemy. It's mostly Putin, but you know. Uh, Again, that's the best I could come up with. Anyway. So next, Um, another surprising thing is that the servant expresses frustration about laboring in vain. If you guys have ever grown up in a missionary context or been part of a more uh, evangelical sort of background, you know that suffering isn't, and complaining about things isn't always accepted. But the fact is that God accepts the servant's suffering. God, God acknowledges it, and that's totally okay. Um, in verse four, the servant says that he spent his strength for nothing at all. He feels futility in the suffering that he's had. He can't see the point of his suffering. So let's talk about why did the servant feel this way? Why was he frustrated? Verse two, it says, the, the, it says that the servant, his mouth was like a sharpened sword. So certainly, if your mouth is like a sharpened sword, if you're telling people things like it is, you're not gonna be popular. And we definitely saw that in Jesus's ministry and in the life of the prophets. In verse seven, it says, well, also in verse two, it says that he was a quiver that was hidden. So being someone who's obeying God's commands, but yet not having people recognize that is also really difficult and definitely a source of suffering. In verse seven, it says the servant is despised and abhorred by the nation, by his own nation. And in verse six, even though the servant is abhorred by his nation, he's unable to see the greater purpose that God has. So he feels, the servant himself, he feels like he's working for Israel. At this point, he doesn't see his greater purpose to the nations, and yet Israel is rejecting him. So I wanna ask us, to consider for ourselves, what are some other ways, some other reasons why we might feel like our work is in vain? And I know all of us, having been in ministry, having walked with people and suffered with them, you don't immediately see the, the benefits of it. You may never see the benefits of it in your life. You can put in your time with people. You can put in your money into causes and still not feel like you're really seeing any fruit out of that labor. And well, that's exactly what the servant is feeling in this. So let's drive some meaning out of this. What do you guys feel is the main idea of this passage? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely encouragement. And I would say that a lot of the prophecies in Isaiah are about encouragement, encouraging Israelites in the midst of their suffering and encouraging the servant for that matter, that this is the point of what you're doing. So what are some things that the reader is supposed to learn about God from this passage? We can complain to God, we definitely can. Yep, he can take it. He is bigger than our complaints. Any other thoughts about what we might learn about God's character from this passage? Oh, true. <laughs> he is not gonna back down on his plans. His plans are his plans and as much as we might complain about them, like he knows what he's doing. That's reassuring like that's another form of encouragement I feel like you don't get that much with people Right, yeah. When we complain to God, he doesn't just leave us to complain. It's part of the relationship that we have with him, and he reminds us and encourages us for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what are some ways that the passage points back to Jesus? This might be too big of a question for us to answer right now, but if you guys can think of anything, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, oh, I love that, yeah. So Jesus models, not only does Jesus do the delivering that brings salvation to both the Gentiles and the Jews, but he and his disciples model what that looks like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and in this passage, God doesn't say specifically how he's going to be bringing the light to the Gentiles, just that there will, and here are the consequences. In Isaiah 19, the passage that we looked at that talked about the Assyrians and the Egyptians worshiping him. It talks about what that'll look like, but it does not say how it's going to come about. And it's beautiful that it's almost like God went above and beyond in Jesus' life to do that. Yeah. So let's go ahead and move into application. Let's ask ourselves, is the suffering servant an ideal way to live? Is it great to suffer? Well, the question is, does the servant choose to suffer? No, no, he doesn't choose to suffer. He chooses to be obedient. And this is a lot of the theme that runs through all of the songs of the suffering servant. It is not about the suffering. It should be the song of the obedient servant and with obedience can come suffering. Definitely. Especially when you're running against the grain of what people around you think that you should be doing. We can sometimes glorify suffering as if it's proof that we're living a holy life. Like the more you suffer, the holier you are. But really, that's not the point. The point is the obedience. The suffering is simply a consequence of that and not something to be sought after. When we're obedient and speaking out injustice, it can lead to conflict with people that we love in uncomfortable situations. When we're obedient and giving of our time and treasures, we are not promised to see any return on that. You can be sending your money out, you can be spending your time on people. There is no guarantee that you are ever going to see any fruit from that. It is not something that God promises us. What he promises us is that the fruit will happen, not that we're going to get to see it necessarily. We're obedient and we can only be obedient Because our obedience nurtures our relationship with God and our relationship with God nurtures our obedience Those two things are intertwined You cannot continue to be obedient if you do not have that relationship with God because you will burn out And you can't have that relationship with God unless you're obedient to his commands And it's our relationship with God that ultimately brings glory to God and this is that is what being obedient is is bringing glory to God and doing his work Let's look at how do we stay motivated to do God's work? when it seems like our struggles are in vain. I think, again, all of us have examples in our lives of places where we really put in the work and we really tried and we did what God asked us to, and a lot of what came out of that was heartbreak and disappointment. It was disappointed expectations, it was feeling like we spun our wheels and ultimately it had no purpose. So David Livingston, the famous Scottish medical missionary who spent most of his life preaching in Africa. He opened the door to Africa, and he helped bring tourism and Christianity to the southern part of Africa, which in some ways was really good. Um, And he suffered a lot for it. He was attacked by a lion, which is pretty exotic, I think, like missionary thing to do. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, he lost a child while he was working out in the mission field. And he was separated from his family while he went and preached in the bush. For the end of his life, he wrote, all that I have done has only opened up the African slave trade. The mission societies bear no fruit after 23 years of labor. All work seems to be in vain. I have labored in vain. And to be sure, his legacy is mixed. It's wonderful that he brought Christianity to the southern part of South Africa, but he also did, in some ways, facilitate the slave trade through his exploration of the area. And while That was also the case. He also was able to provide firsthand accounts of some massacres and atrocities that happened. And that was part of what ultimately led to the abolition of the slave trade in Britain. So the fact is every Christian has an enduring legacy that is mixed. Nobody is fully good except for Jesus. Nobody is fully successful except for Jesus. And in contrast to David Livingston, We also see numerous examples, especially recently, of pastors who've lived so-called successful ministries where they've fallen from grace due to pride or corruption. Nobody has an enduring legacy that's going to be completely 100% pure and glorified. And we can accept that. That is just the nature of being a human being and being imperfect. And Tina Fey's book, Bossy Pants, she describes her bewilderment at being offered a working mom of the year award when her child was just a toddler. And she writes, how could they possibly know if I'm a good mother? How can any of us know until the kid is about 33 and all the personality dust has settled? The fact is, we have no way of knowing what influence we're going to have in the world. We can spend our entire lives being devoted to following God's word. And in the end, we really have no way of knowing what kind of impact we have on people. Jesus was the most obedient servant to ever serve God. He knew he was going to face opposition and hardship, but at no point did he ever turn away from his calling. And that led to him living what would be considered by most standards an unsuccessful life from our human perspective. He was hated by the elders. He was persecuted for, his, for speaking out. And he was ultimately killed because of his choice to be obedient to God. Two thousand years later, looking back, we can all agree that Jesus' legacy has had a profound impact on the world as a whole. But there are still debates on the nature of that legacy among people of different beliefs. We believe it was all for the good. People who aren't Christian, people who may have been oppressed by Christians over the years, who knows. Given our complete lack of control over how we're perceived by other people and our inability to predict the consequences of our own actions, we have nothing back to fall back on, to ensure our success. The only thing that we can rely on is that if we are obedient to God, ultimately things will turn out in the way. In the end. We want a good outcome that glorifies God, and obedience is the only way to achieve that. And obedience is only possible, as shown in Isaiah 49, when we have an intimate relationship with God the Father. Like the servant in Isaiah, we may not understand what his plans or his purpose are for us, But we need to be able to stay in dialogue with the Father so we can have that back and forth conversation and get little glimpses of what he's doing and keep pushing on. So we gotta stay in the dialogue with the Father. What does this mean? This means, as we talked about in talking about our summer podcast, it's about staying in the word, getting to know God's character through Bible study. It means praying. You can pray to ask things but ultimately part of the goal of prayer is to center your thoughts on god and to remind yourself that he is the one in the center of every storm that you're in it means reflecting on his role in your life through journaling and through giving praise even when you don't feel like it it's only through our relationship with god that our obedience and our plans can be fulfilled